Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai It is 7 Central African time good morning and welcome to the third and final hour of Africa rise and shine This is Channel Africa. We are broadcasting from an African perspective. I'm Kumbero Mjelele. Coming up on the show this hour, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa prepares to deliver State of the Nation address. Impeachment trial of former U.S. President Donald Trump continues in Washington. In economics, De Beers expects to report $650 million in Rafa Diamond sales. And in sports, Moroccan Football Association announces Kaiser Chiefs ban from entering Morocco. All these stories and more coming up on the show, but first, the news with El Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good morning, I'm Anne Musa. South Africa's National Assembly Speaker Tandi Mudise says tonight's State of the Nation address is expected to cost about $6,000. This is significantly less than the thousands of dollars it has cost taxpayers in previous years. The usual pomp and ceremony around the event has been cancelled due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Over 50 people will be allowed inside the National Assembly when President Cyril Ramaphosa presents his address while other members of parliament and guests will follow proceedings on virtual platforms. Modise says this year the biggest expense will be connectivity costs. We did in uh, our press uh, briefing last week say that we expect that the only costs that we will bear in this particular sauna as parliament will be the costs of paying for the virtual uh, connectivity. Thus far, parliament is estimating just over 100,000 for, for this A World Health Organization panel has recommended that the AstraZeneca coronavirus vaccine be deployed widely, including in countries where new variant of the coronavirus may reduce its efficacy. Briefing the media, the WHO Strategic Advisory Group of Experts on Immunization, SAGE, said the vaccine was safe and effective. South Africa temporarily suspended the rollout of the vaccine after a study showed that it has limited efficacy against the new variant. The WHO's Dr. Catherine O'Brien. The intention, as we understand it from uh, South Africa, is to proceed with the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine in the context of collecting in a very dedicated way and a well-designed way, collecting the kind of information that is needed in order to fill in some of the gaps in information around um, severe disease for this product with the variant that is circulating. We will uh, be doing everything possible to support South Africa The European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has refused to apologize for failings in the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines for EU citizens. Shaev admitted that the Commission made miscalculations. The BBC's Gavin Lee reports. 3% of the uh, European Union citizens have so far had the the vaccine, way behind Israel, the US, the UK. And also what's been going on with the contracts with the likes of AstraZeneca, where they're 60 million short of what was promised in the deal and they won't get that now till the end of March so they are way behind and this was 
The first time Ursula von der Leyen in public, basically she said that we deeply underestimated the difficulty of mass production. The science, she said, was ahead of the industry. And she said, we are not where we want to be. The head of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, Francesco Rocca, has called for much more help to reach the victims of war in Ethiopia's Tigray region. Rocca says he's very concerned about the conditions and warned of rising malnutrition. The government has been criticized for preventing humanitarian agencies from reaching victims of the conflict. It has promised greater aid access, those most in need of help for children, their mothers and the elderly. The president of the Ethiopian Red Cross Society had said 80% of the Gray region was still cut off from humanitarian assistance. Traumatic video evidence of last month's storming of the U.S. Congress by supporters of former President Donald Trump has been played to senators at his second impeachment trial. They also heard radio messages of panicked officials between police as they were overwhelmed. David Cicilline is among those presenting the case against Trump. What we know without any doubt is that from the very beginning, the people around Donald Trump lobbied him to take command. What's also clear is what Donald Trump, our commander-in-chief, did in those initial hours to protect us. Nothing. Not a thing. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African time. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. This is one of the most important moments in the life of our country. I stand before you filled with deep pride and joy, pride in the ordinary, humble people of this country. You have shown such a calm patient determination to reclaim this country as your own from the rooftops free at last. You are listening to Africa Rise and Shine here on Channel Africa from an African perspective. I am Kumbaro Munjerere. Welcome. And of course, today, the 11th of February, is International Day of Women and Girls in Science, the day that allows to honor women's significant achievements in science and place a much-needed focus on girls entering science, technology, engineering, and mathematics careers as the fastest-growing segment of jobs with employers finding it, finding, it, finding it hard to find available talent, science careers need women. We hope you have a fun day today by learning about women charting their f- course as a techie trailblazers and by supporting young women to pursue their passions in science and technology careers. The nine Democratic House members acting as Trump's prosecutors accuse him of encouraging his backers to block the peaceful transfer of power, a hallmark of American democracy. Much of their case focused on the former president's speech to supporters, encouraging them to march on the Capitol just minutes before the precinct was breached. Lead impeachment manager. 
This is Channel Africa. We are broadcasting from an African perspective. Good morning. Now to the U.S. now Democratic House impeachment managers used their opening statements in former President Donald Trump's Senate impeachment trial to debunk any notion that his rhetoric around fighting the process to certify the election result was somehow metaphorical. The managers who have up to 16 hours to prosecute the case of Trump's alleged inside of, of insurrection sought to use the former president's own words and tweets in making the case that uh, he exhorted thousands of his supporters to march on Capitol Hill on January 6th in what turned into a violent assault on the seat of uh, the U.S. government. Sherwin Bryce Peace reports. The nine Democratic House members acting as Trump's prosecutors accuse him of encouraging his backers to block the peaceful transfer of power, a hallmark of American democracy. Much of their case focused on the former president's speech to supporters, encouraging them to march on the Capitol just minutes before the precinct was breached. Lead impeachment manager Jamie Raskin. If anyone ever had a doubt as to his focus that day, it was not to defend us, it was not to console us, it was to praise and sympathize and commiserate with the rampaging mob. It was to continue to act as insider-in-chief, not commander-in-chief, by telling the mob that their election had been stolen from them. Even then, after that vicious attack, he continued to spread the big lie. And as everyone here knows, Joe Biden won by more than 7 million votes and 306 to 232 in the Electoral College. But Donald Trump refused to accept his loss even after this attack. And he celebrated the people who violently interfered with the peaceful transfer of power for the first time in American history and did that at his urging. Raskin cited Trump's praise for the rioters, urging them to fight like hell, and even after the assault, calling them very special people in a video released via Twitter. I know you're pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it, especially the other side. Raskin continued. This was all perfectly natural and foreseeable to Donald Trump. At the beginning of the day, he told you it was coming. At the end of the day, he basically says, I told you this would happen. And then he adds, remember this day forever. But not as a day of disgrace, a day of horror and trauma, as the rest of us remember it, but as a day of celebration, a day of commemoration. And if we let it be, it will be a day of continuation, a call to action, and a rallying cry for the next rounds of insurrectionary justice. Because all of this was totally appropriate. Senators, the stakes of this trial could not be more serious. Democrats arguing that Trump planted the seeds of the deadly January 6th attack. Impeachment manager Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett. It was not until after President Trump and his team became involved in the planning that the march from the ellipse to the Capitol came about in direct contravention of the original permit. This was not a coincidence. None of this was. Donald Trump, over many months, cultivated violence, praised it. And then when he saw the violence his supporters were capable of, he channeled it to his big, wild, historic 
event. Impeachment manager Congresswoman Madeleine Dean also honed in on Trump's January call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, pressurizing him to find enough votes to overturn Joe Biden's presidential election win in that state. This is the President of the United States telling a Secretary of State that if he does not find votes, he will face criminal penalties. Here's what he said. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have. He says it right there. The President of the United States telling a public official to manufacture the exact votes needed so he can win. The former president's defense team will respond only once the impeachment managers have made their case, likely to focus their arguments on Trump's First Amendment rights while attacking the process as a political exercise to block the 45th president from running for office in the future. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. The suggestion that bandits who surrender arms should be given amnesty has been rejected again by Nigerians from different walks of life. The belief is that if they get amnesty, it could worsen the state of insecurity, which is already taking its toll on the country in terms of men, material and financial resources, and Abuja may not be able to handle it. Channel Africa's correspondent in Lagos, Collins Nosa Atohangbe, reports. The heated debate on whether or not bandits should be granted amnesty arose from the events in which six notorious bandits' leaders willingly handed in their weapons to the government of Zamfara State where they had been operating and swore never to return to banditry. Taking his opinion off from the observation with the Kaduna State Governor Nasri Erufai who warned that it would be a wrong step to grant bandits amnesty while speaking on an Hausa radio program. Catch on Onodju, a public affairs analyst, says the bandits are not Nigerians but foreign Fulani militias who are seeking to occupy places in Nigeria. Now that we have had an influx of these refugees, war weary from Mali and other places, and they now come and use cattle to camouflage and commit these crimes, the problem is the absence of political will. It's just like the president said that these are foreigners coming in from Libya. But I know these are foreigners coming in from Mali. They don't speak Hausa. They don't speak English. They speak Bambara and French. So they are not Nigerians. These are Fulani militia bandits kidnapping to fund what they do and sometimes getting money from government to augment whatever they don't have. Amnesty for who? For people from Mali or people from Central African Republic? In the opinion of Kabir Adamo, a security policy expert, the absence of a standard procedure in dealing with banditry will hamper any efforts being made to end the menace in time. There are several non-state actors. It's not just the bandits, um, you know, depending on wh where you go to. And so if every governor or every component of the authorities is allowed to engage with these non-state actors as it deems fit, then unfortunately we may end up incentivizing weaponization of conflict where every non-state actor picks a weapon and then knows that once he or she does that, um, they will get government attention. And that's not what we want. Even though at a certain point in time, it's absolutely necessary to discuss um, with some of these non-state actors. 
Feeling displeased with the way the federal government has handled the issue of Fulani bandits, the Senate Minority Leader in the Nigerian National Assembly, Einaya Abaribi, says there is double standard and that will not do Nigeria any good. Why has this federal government not ever opened their mouth to say that the Hatsmen are terrorists? That all these people who are carrying AK-47s are killing people are terrorists. Yet, it was so easy to quickly go to court to get an injunction and declare IPOB terrorists. That means that in the mindset of those who are running this country today, they see some people as their enemy. What we want is that you restructure this country so that me and you, we are seen as citizens. So that if I carry an AK-47, you jail me. It's not if I carry a flag, you jail me. And then I carry an AK-47 and say, leave him. He's our brother coming from Burkina Faso. How can that be? The Nobel laureate, Professor Wale Shoinka says to reduce tension over the way the Fulani bandits issue is being handled, President Buhari must openly condemn and warn the murderous Fulani headsmen who have used the force of arms to intimidate, rob, rape, and displace Nigerians from their homes. Address the nation in very really stern, unambiguous terms. Say openly, yes, I know I am the patron of the Cattle Rearers uh, Association. I'm a cattle uh, rancher myself. It's a business. I do not run my business by occupying land that does not belong to me. All you cattle rearers, whatever comes to you for trespassing on other people's property is your business. This is the language which I expect from President Buhari. And as long as that language does not come, I must consider him you know, complicit in what is going on because the buck stops at his death. Kajanonuju says the bandits who are committing atrocities in Nigeria are war-weary Fulani militias distinctly different from the Fulani of Nigeria extraction and their language is not within the geographical location of Nigeria. Ethnic criminals from Mali and other countries are flooding here. They don't speak English, they don't speak Hausa, they speak Bambara and French. Why do we have weakness from the top protecting people of a certain ethnicity for their chosen kind of crime? They are not fighting for anybody's good. Despite the horrific stories surrounding the gun-totting Fulani headsmen, the Nigerian army has recorded unprecedented successes in recent engagement with the insurgents in the war zones of northeast of Nigeria. The newly appointed Chief of Army Staff, General Ibrahim Atahiru, says the successes has been achieved through the joint efforts of the Nigerian and Cameroonian forces. Successes been recorded. I want to cash in on that and ensure the total annihilation of Boko Haram from Nigeria. This we were working in tandem with forces from Republic of Cameroon, which we are aware. Soon I will also bring in the Chadeans, so that insecurity will be a thing of the past. Records shows that none of the over 600 Boko Haram members who were caught or who surrendered were prosecuted, but they underwent a process of debriefing and allowed back into the society. There's a heavy burden of who will build the cat in Abuja over Fulani headsmen, said to be the fourth most dangerous terror group in the world. From Lagos, I am Collins Nusato Engbe for Channel Africa News. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka.
Zona Unal. This is Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. The South African State of the Nation address this year will be quite subdued and even a solemn affair, and it will be held at a fraction of the cost of previous years. This Parliament's presiding officers say is due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Zelin Merrington reports from Cape Town. The 2021 State of the Nation address will cost in the region of 100,000 rand, a fraction of the price tag of more than 2 million rand last year. This is because the legislature has cut down significantly on most of the ceremonial activities to adhere to COVID-19 regulations. National Assembly Speaker Tandy Modisi says this year the biggest expense would be connectivity costs. We did in uh, our press uh Briefing last week say that we expect that the only costs that we will bear in this particular sauna as parliament will be the costs of paying for the virtual uh, connectivity. Uh, thus far, parliament is ex- estimating just over 100,000 for, for, for this uh, whole exercise. While none of the usual pomp and ceremony will form part of the procedure, a new gesture will be introduced for this particular sona. President Cyril Ramaphosa and Parliament's presiding officers will light a few candles ahead of his address in memory of those who have lost their lives to the COVID-19 virus. Modise says it would be untoward to conduct the ceremony in the usual way. We want to express our loss in the simplest way as we can as parliament on the this serious loss that we are suffering as a country because of COVID. We have absolutely no other parang parangs. We will be very solemn. We are hurting. We have lost members. We have lost relatives. South Africans are dying. And that is why we take this um, uh, uh, SONA very seriously and as as dignified as we can in our expression that sauna is important, it has to take place every year, but also that we want to focus on helping ourselves and our citizens out there to deal with the sketch and to unite South Africa as much as possible in making sure that we all survive the sketch. Only 50 people will be allowed inside the National Assembly Chamber when President Ramaphosa delivers his address. Parliamentary spokesperson Moloto Matapo says parties will have minimal representation inside the House, while other MPs and guests will follow proceedings on virtual platforms. A total of 30 members of Parliament representing the two Houses of Parliament from various parliamentary political parties will be physically present in the National Assembly Chamber. The President will also be in the National Assembly Chamber when he delivers the address. Also present in the NA chamber will be the Deputy President, Mr. David Mabuza, Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo, and Justice of the Supreme Court of Appeal, Justice Dumisani H. Zondi, will represent the judiciary in the chamber, while the Dean of the Resident Diplomatic Corps, Ambassador Benel Mboko, will be representing uh, the ambassadors. All other MPs will connect through a virtual platform. 
Despite it being a subdued event, several roads around the Parliament precinct will still be closed and tight security is still expected. Zaline Merrington, Parliament. Now, in South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa prepares to deliver the State of the Nation address, analysts say Ramaphosa should be more focused on reducing the country's 4 trillion rand debt. National Treasury projects that the national debt will increase to over 80% of GDP this year and will only stabilize at around 95% by 2025. Analysts say the only way to slow down the rapid growth in debt is to spend less on failing state-owned entities to reduce the public service wage budget and uh, and to arrest corruption. Naledi Ngovo reports. Analysts say they expect President Cyril Ramaphosa to highlight austerity measures that will be adopted by government to achieve sound fiscal consolidation. Chief Economist at Efficient Group Davi Root says although Ramaphosa is expected to announce a reduction in government spending, he will leave the details of government's budget for Finance Minister Ditombowene's budget address later this month. That fiscal limitation the president is probably going to refer to. And obviously the reason why he's going to say that because there's huge pressure on the fiscals to spend on everything. And we've reached the end of the line. We can't keep on spending money like this. And the president needs to acknowledge that as well. The country's debt situation is exacerbated by government's falling revenue targets and a high public service wage bill. A lecturer at Witt's School of Economics and Business Science, Lumki Lemondi, says the Reserve Bank should play a bigger role in helping to manage the country's debt crisis. It requires an expansionary fiscal uh, model where government lean uh, on the central bank to assist it uh, by borrowing more of government debt and holding government debt uh, and therefore putting liquidity to enable government to really invest hugely on failing infrastructure in South Africa. Mondi says a tax increase may prompt more people to move their money offshore due to the public's lack of faith in government and its ability to manage public resources. Many of us believe that uh, this, again, another tax increase uh, to try and mobilize funding uh, for comrades to share the spoil, as they've done recently on the the PPE uh, procurement. So really, uh, the increase in taxes will push uh, those individuals who still have got large savings in Africa to move them offshore. President Cyril Ramaphosa is expected to deliver the State of the Nation address on Thursday evening from 7 o'clock. I'm Naledi Ngobo in Johannesburg. Divisions within South Africa's ruling ANC will widen if former President Jacob Zuma is arrested for failing to appear before the State Capture Commission. This is the view of KwaZulu-Natal ANC Secretary Mdumiseni Ntuli. Ntuli met Zuma last week following his widely publicized and open defiance of the Zondo Commission. The party in the province seeks intervention of Cyril Ramaphosa and the organization's top six on the matter. Makosini reports. The ANC in Guazunatal finds itself navigating uncharted water as Zuma faces arrest should he defy the constitutional court ruling to appear before the commission and account for the alleged corruption when he was South African president. Party leaders in the province fear that divisions that already exist in the party could be widened. 
Nduli says the provincial leadership decided to meet Zuma and also seek intervention from senior party leadership. So if he gets arrested, it's perfectly clear that society will be divided into two groups. There will be those who believe that his arrest is a traverse of justice and others will be convinced that he deserves to be arrested because he violated a decision of the highest court in the land. Now that may not be a difficult issue for him because uh, I mean he has been in prison in the past for a period of 10 years. This may be an arrest that is less than that. But the implications to the unit and the cohesion of the ANC are going to be very profound. It's because and our concern is that uh, sooner than later, the arrest of the former president will soon be appropriated to either the sitting president of the ANC or some of the leaders of the ANC. And when that happens, divisions in the ANC will run deep. Among the reasons Zuma gave to party officials for his reluctance to return to the Zonal Commission is that he believes that his rights have been violated. Zuma remains unhappy about Judge Raymond Zondo's dismissal of his application that the judge recuse himself. Ntuli says another of Zuma's concern is the Constitutional Court's swift ruling forcing him to appear before the Commission while his appeal against Judge Zondo's ruling is still pending. His first sense of discomfort is that when the matter was put before Justice Zondo, Justice Zondo decided that it's going to be the same person who's going to be a judge and a prosecutor on the matter. He feels that he's conflicted because he should have allowed a separate person to listen to the story of Justice Zondo and the story of former President Zuma and then make a determination whether there's any merit to the points. Now, that, that did not happen, obviously, uh, created an environment where when a decision is taken by Justice Zondo, former President Zuma decided to take that matter up on, a, on what is called a, a review, which he has done, he's taking it up, he has taken it up through the High Court. Now, before the High Court could come to the conclusion on the matter, the Commission decided to take the same matter to the Constitutional Court. Now, the impression that is created, uh, at least on the, on the part of uh, former President Zuma, is that uh, Justice Zondo used his proximity to the Constitutional Court to get a preferred earlier date for the matter to be considered, a matter that is still within the High Court of the Republic of South Africa. The issue has also been discussed by the ANC's Provincial Working Committee. Ntuli also says they have resolved to request the party's national leadership to intervene. And we are also attempting to reach out to the national officials for that kind of a meeting. I think the chair of the province, either today or tomorrow, would soon be having a, a telephone discussion with the president. And um, the PwC said the top five must run with this matter. And so we are very confident that the leadership would be would be on our side on this matter uh, because we are not going to be going to them and say, no, you know what we think, JZ must not go to a commission, this commission is wrong, we're not there. But we're saying, how do we deal with the, the current conflict? Uh, the concerns that are raised by former President Zuma, many of which are very legitimate. I mean, if you take the matter on a review, and while you are waiting for the outcome of the review, a different court takes a different conclusion. What if the review tomorrow comes out and say, we judge on your side? Meanwhile, Zuma's supporters are mobilizing support for the former president in branches and other organs of the ANC. The Umkonto Wesizu Military Veterans Association is expected to visit Zuma at his Nkanda home state on Thursday. 
But for party leaders, the clock is ticking as the former president was summoned to appear before the commission on Monday. I am Vusi Makosini in Devon. This is Africa Rise and Shine. It is now time for the news headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. man Musa, good morning. In the headlines, South Africa's National Assembly Speaker Tandi Mudise says tonight's State of the Nation address is expected to cost about 6,000 US dollars. This is significantly less than the thousands of dollars it has cost taxpayers in previous years. A World Health Organization panel has recommended that the AstraZeneca coronavirus vaccine be deployed widely, including in countries where the variant, the new variant of the coronavirus, may reduce its efficacy. And traumat- uh, traumatic video evidence of last month's storming of the U.S. Congress by supporters of former President Donald Trump has been played to senators at his second impeachment trial. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. You are listening to Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa. We are broadcasting from an African perspective. I am Kumbero Munjerere. Good morning. According to stats from the National Cancer Registry, one in four South Africans are affected by cancer. These figures stress the importance of not delaying care as it can often be too late when exploring treatment options as many cancers progress rapidly. However, concerns continue to mount as the COVID-19 pandemic results in delayed cancer screening and treatment with fears of long-term consequences in morbidity and mortality figures. To discuss this further, the rather the importance of continued cancer screening and treatment despite the pandemic, we are now joined on the line by an oncologist with the Life Healthcare Group, Dr. Louis Kathan. Good morning, Dr. Kathan, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, listeners, and thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Now, let's talk uh, about the impact of COVID on cancer treatment in terms of uh, the drop in patients visiting the healthcare facilities for screening and treatment. How worrying is the situation, doctor? Um, globally, it's exceptionally worrying. Um, in April 2020, figures in the United States demonstrated that there was a decrease in mammogram screening for breast cancer by 89.2%. Sure. And for colorectal cancer using colonoscopies by 84.5%. So those are re- dramatic reductions in patients actually seeking screening interventions. The problem with decreasing screening is that The idea of screening is to try and diagnose cancers early before they become symptomatic. And in so doing, you would diagnose them at an earlier stage and potentially they are much more curable then. Now, let's talk about that further, you know, the importance of cancer screening and how people can know that they actually need uh, um, those services. So first and foremost, we're all different. Um, it's all based on what our 
um, family history is, what our comorbidities are. So in other words, are we diabetic, are we hypertensive, what our physical activity is, what our diet's like, whether we smoke or drink. So we always advise our patients to be guided by their primary health care practitioner. Um, so generally, the guidelines state that anyone over the age of 50 needs to have a colonoscopy. But there are certain conditions like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease or a strong family history of colorectal cancer, which would mean that you would have your colonoscopy earlier. And similarly, with breast cancer, you know, there are patients who've got a very strong family history of breast carcinoma, and therefore their mammograms need to be done at a much younger age. We do, however, you know, and worldwide, including at Life Healthcare, we do encourage all our ladies to regularly, monthly examine their breasts and go for regular clinical examinations with their primary healthcare practitioner as well as adhering to the routine guidelines and go for mammograms regularly. Now, we are living in difficult times, Doctor, of COVID-19 pandemic. Um, what are healthcare facilities doing to continue providing patients with the highest level of treatment and care without compromising their safety during the pandemic? So, all hospital groups, including Life Healthcare hospital groups, have invested and taken great care and invested in state-of-the-art infection prevention technology. And also, they've done basic things, you know, the, the basic things as in uh, providing their staff and their practitioners with PPE. There are no visitors allowed into hospitals at all healthcare facilities and hospitals. Patients are screened at the door with a questionnaire, their temperature and asking about symptoms. All patients and staff have to wear masks. We maintain good social distancing and we do the basic things, avoid large gatherings, number one. And number two, you know, wash your hands with a 70% alcohol hand wash and otherwise if you don't have access to that soap and water. But, you know, just the normal COVID um, preventative measures need sure. to be employed. But healthcare facilities have been very stringent and have employed that. And just as we wrap up, Doctor, what would you say have been uh, the key lessons around how COVID-19 is affecting cancer patients, which um, needs to be given enough attention? Well, the first thing is that cancer patients are more susceptible to getting worse covid Okay, and worse outcomes with their COVID. So the one thing is, as we are awaiting eagerly our vaccine program, we should be encouraging all patients, especially oncology patients, to be prioritized to receive the vaccine. The second thing I'd like to emphasize is that cancer doesn't wait for COVID. So if you do have symptoms, do not avoid if you do feel a breast mass or any other mass or you're bleeding from anywhere, the normal symptoms seek medical attention. Do not delay your routine screening because it could potentially save your life if you find an early malignancy. All right, a vital advice there, Doctor. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Kathan, for talking to us. We highly appreciate your time. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. All right. That's uh, Dr. Louis Kathan, an oncologist with the Life Healthcare Group in South Africa. He was not there as a father to see us grow up, to give us advice and guidance, but he would do it through letters. Nonetheless, darling, I'm glad to note that you're adjusting yourself and trying to be happy all the same. 
never missed a birthday. He would always send you a card with a message. I felt tremendous when I read the lines, a nice place after all. As long as you have an iron will, darling, you can turn misfortune into advantage, as you yourself say. In tribute to our democratic founding father, UK citizens hoping to return home after 33 countries that the British government considers to be COVID-19 hotspots, including South Africa and other Southern African nations, will face stricter quarantine measures from next week. All will be made to pay for a 10-day stay at a government-approved hotel with any travellers caught giving false information about the countries they have travelled through facing a potential jail sentence. Laura Making Asia Wood sent this report from London. This is pretty bad news for any UK citizens hoping to return home from South Africa and other countries in Southern Africa on the UK government's red list. From February the 15th, that's Monday, they'll have to abide by some pretty strict quarantine rules with no exemptions. There'll be a compulsory 10-day stay in a government-approved hotel, followed by COVID tests on days 2 and 8 to make sure they're clear, at a cost of £1,750 per person, paid for by the traveller themselves. It's a step up from the current rules which allow returning citizens to self-isolate at home and for anyone who thinks they might be able to avoid the bill or the quarantine by lying about having been in any red-listed countries before their flight, they could face a possible prison sentence of up to 10 years. There's been a lot of criticism about this decision, some saying the penalty is too harsh, others wondering whether courts will actually enforce it. Government ministers, though, say that anyone breaking the rules should expect this kind of harsh enforcement in order to try to protect lives and stop the spread of any potential new coronavirus variants. It's not yet clear how long these restrictions are going to last. Laura Makinishawood, SABC News, London. Now, while rhino poaching showed a 33% decline in South Africa for 2020, wildlife conservationists uh, say the continued avid demand from Asia remains the greatest threat to the preservation of the species. The latest figures from the Environment, Forestry and Fisheries Department notes that in 2020, 394 rhinos were lost to poaching compared to the 594 in 2019. Of the recent losses, only 37 was by private reserves, lockdown regulations on limited movement and the closing of land borders had a direct impact on poaching activity across the country. And the tireless diligence of South Africa's frontline rangers has also been praised. Minosh Nipilei compiled this report. I will never ever forget that feeling of utter waste and sadness to see such a magnificent animal in, in the way that they had been left. And, and the worst part, of course, was that there were KFC wrappers all around them. So the poachers were so comfortable with where they were, they decided to sit down and have a snack next to a dehorned rhino. It's devastating. Jamie Patterson is the scientific editor for Africa Geographic. She describes the gruesomeness of a poaching incident she came across a few years ago, a grim reality of South Africa's ongoing rhino poaching scourge. Just last week, I went with a group of vets and, and reserve managers to go and dehorn a rhino. Even that was so 
utterly sad to see this magnificent rhino bull with his enormous horn. And then when he stood up from the anesthetic, he just looked, looked so small and empty. Speaking from Hood Spread in Limpopo, she says that while the decline in poaching is a step in the right direction, it's by no means a victory. She cites demand from the Asian market, corruption within the law enforcement system, and the worsening socio-economic problems in the country's most vulnerable communities, many of which are bordering reserves, as critical challenges that do not have simple answers. But communications head at the Environment, Forestry and Fisheries Department, Albi Modise, says that collaborative efforts between law enforcement agencies are yielding results. Last year, 66 poachers were arrested within the Kruger National Park and 90 for rhino horn trafficking and poaching outside the park. The NPA won 44 convictions. The arrest at the airport of Chien Ling, who was arrested and found in possession of uh, rhino horns without a permit and was sentenced to about five years. I mean, that is one example that shows that despite the fact that the lockdown had closed uh, the country and uh, limited movement, there were those who still continued to want to make a killing, if you don't mind that expression. Last week, SARS officials seized a 53 million rand shipment of rhino horn destined for Malaysia at the O.R. Tamba International Airport in Johannesburg. Losses in the Kruger National Park, home to the world's largest population of rhinos, last year are staggering with 245 poaching incidents. 16 elephants were also poached for their tusks. In a statement, the Worldwide Fund for Nature in South Africa critically notes the park's whopping 70% decline in rhino numbers. In their 2019-2020 report, Sandparks attributes this to drought and poaching. And that report by Minoshni Pillay. It is 7.45. Time for the latest economic news with Tabisuli Hoku. A very good morning. South Africa's power utility, ESCOM, has suspended load shedding as generation capacity has sufficiently recovered, helping to ease the capacity constraints as the power utility implemented Stage 3 load shedding on Wednesday after a number of generation units broke down. ESCOM spokesperson, Sikonati Manjanja. Past 24 hours, ESCOM team successfully returned four generation units to service helping ease the capacity constraints sufficiently to enable us to not require load shedding. Another five units are expected to return to service during the next two days. The load shedding of the past two days has also enabled ESCOM to adequately replenish the emergency generation reserves. ESCOM continues to implement reliability maintenance during this period and as such the system will continue to be constrained with the risk of load shedding remaining elevated. Global mining company De Beers has said it expects to report 650 million US dollars in rough diamond sales for its first cycle of 2021 following strong diamond jewelry sales. De Beers, which holds a 10 sales cycles in a year in Botswana's capital Khaborone says that the sales of rough diamonds are also being supported by expected demand ahead of Chinese New Year and Valentine's Day. The group chief executive Bruce Atleva says 
With the midstream starting the year with low levels of rough and polished inventories and following strong sales of diamond jewelry over the key holiday season in the U.S., the company saw good demand for rough diamonds in the first cycle. The Poultry Association of Zambia has anticipated that the sector will record an increase in the production of processed chickens and other poultry products due to measures implemented in the wake of coronavirus. PAZ Executive Director Dominic Chanda said despite the country being hit by COVID-19, the poultry sector has continued to thrive due to measures government has implemented. Chanda said that the poultry sector in the first half of 2019 recorded a 30% drop in the production of processed chickens. Global National Oil Corporation risks squandering over 400 billion US dollars on expensive oil and gas projects over the next decade if the world meets the Paris climate goals. This was estimated by the National Resource Governance Institute, a non-governmental organization. NRGI, in its new report called Risky Bet, estimated that these companies could invest 1.9 trillion US dollars over the next 10 years, meaning one-fifth of those investments would not be viable unless the oil price stayed above 40 US dollars a barrel. A new report has set out the scale of the economic problem facing oil and gas producing countries if the world meets internationally agreed targets to limit global warming. A London think tank called Carbon Tracker says dozens of governments face trillions of dollars of losses in the next two decades. Here's the BBC's Andrew Walker. Carbon Tracker describes its report as a wake-up call. It says that containing global warming would reduce total government revenue up to 2040 for some countries, including Saudi Arabia, Nigeria and Iraq, by between 20 and 40%. For some, including Angola and Azerbaijan, the predicted loss is even larger. The report calls for the rest of the world to help 40 highly oil and gas dependent countries to diversify their economies. It says there's a moral case for it, as some of them are very poor. The US dollar is a trading at a 377.99 Nigerian Nara, 1077 Botswana Pula, 108.58 Kenyan shilling and a 21.55 for Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, Brazil won a US dollar trades at 5 rule 37 Russia. 73 rubles 82, India 72 rupees 81, China 61.44, and in South Africa, a dollar is trading at 14 rand 71. The US dollar is also trading at 72 pence to the British pound and 82 cents to euro. A look at commodities gold $1,836, platinum $1,237 per ounce, brand crude $61, 7 cents a barrel. Africa, your favorite channel. Let's cross off and out to sports. Uh, Fikile Lingwate is standing by with the latest. First up in our sports update, we begin with cricket tennis news. Australian Open CEO Craig Tiley admits the picture is not looking too good f- 
and Rosie for the hard court Grand Slam over the next few years, warning that they need to manage risks, cash flow, and players' expectations. The Australian Open has always been one of the most highly rated tennis events, with Tylee often receiving high praise for players. They Tylee says they are already talking about different Australian Open scenarios for 2022 because they don't think they will be repeating 2020-2021. What we are going to plan for is quarantine program, um, a different date, because uh, currently we've, we've been pushed a month forward as an event, so we want to come to a month back in, in January. Uh, so get back to our original dates. Uh, quarantine in, in December. Um, you know, more crowds, but in a, in a much more digitally friendly and, and safe way, uh, or, or new way, I should say. It's safe currently now, but they'll continue with those protocols. I don't see physical distancing and the wearing of masks and the quarantine going anytime soon. South Africa's Comrades Marathon, scheduled for the 13th of June, has been cancelled. But the Ultra Marathon celebrating its centenary this year will continue as a virtual run ahead. Instead, according to a statement issued by the Comrades Marathon Association, the decision comes in the wake of engagements with Guazul Natal Athletics. Athletics South Africa, the National Coronavirus, Corona Command Council, members of the medical fraternity and government health departments. It added the decision was taken for moral and imperative reasons given the ongoing uncertainty and unprecedented circumstances of the coronavirus pandemic. The onset of a second wave and a significantly more infectious variant of COVID-19. Meanwhile, this news comes after the Two Oceans Marathon organizers last week announced they had cancelled their 2021 race. The CAF Champions League match between South Africa's side Kaza Chiefs and Moroccan side Wydad Casablanca will not be played this weekend as Moroccan authorities refused the South African side entry to the country due to the new variant of COVID-19. The Morocco Football Federation has called on the Confederation of African Football, CAF, to postpone the match or hold it in another country. Kaiser Chiefs on Wednesday evening confirmed the postponement of their travel to face Wydad Casablanca amid the ongoing impasse with Moroccan officials regarding their visas. Chiefs were said to jet out to Morocco on Wednesday evening. South, uh, South Sudan Football Association, SSFA, has announced Shailene Boyson as the new head coach of the country's national women's football team on a two-year contract that will see her take charge of the Bright Starlets till 2023. Shailene previously worked as an assistant coach of Houston Dash in the National Women's Soccer League in the USA. Most recently, she has been working as an assistant coach for the South, South African senior women's national team, Banyana Banyana. Francis Amin, president of the South Sudan Football Association, says they are delighted to have the South African come on board as the head coach of the team, also seeing that their vision is to be number one and have a full-time head coach as part of the association's strategic plan. Finally, Pakistan are hoping to turn their 2020 fortunes around when they take on a depleted South Africa in a three-match series starting in Lahore today. The hosts have won just one of their last eight 2020 series with victory coming against Zimbabwe. And batsman David Miller looks ahead to the 2020 series. We know we're up against a really strong Pakistan team, so we do respect that at the same time. I genuinely do feel like in T20 cricket, um, you know, if you prep well and you've got a great team, uh, you know, you can there are opportunities to to still lose. So, you know, I think we need to be mentally up for the game. 
um, at all costs, whether we underdogs or, you know, if we guys that are, are really strong in, in, in a particular team. So I think we just need to really be switched on for, for the specific games that we play, be in the present, stick to our processes. And, um, you know, uh, I don't see, see why we can't compete at, um, against one of the stronger teams in, in Pakistan. That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories this hour, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa prepares to deliver State of the Nation address. Impeachment trial of former U.S. President Donald Trump continues in Washington. And in economics, DBS expects to report $650 million in rough diamond sales. And in sports, Moroccan Football Association announces Kaiser Chiefs ban from entering Morocco. And that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today from myself, Kumbero Mujerere, producer Pumuzora Magaza, technical producers Fiso Mashiho, and the rest of the team. Thank you for listening. Playing us out to the top of the hour is Sipo Mabuze with a song called Nelson Mandela, as we remember Dada Nelson Mandela. Have a fantastic day, Feather. Cheers. I have cherished the idea.